Hello and welcome to another episode of Impressions of America. I'm Simon and with me as always is Toby. Hi Toby. Hi Simon. Also with us today is Nate Bethea, co-host and producer of What a Hell of a Way to Die podcast. Hi Nate, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. In this episode, we will be looking at the second part of our Nixon trilogy, Nixon in China. In July 1971, President Nixon announced on live TV that the following year he would be visiting the People's Republic of China. The, le- the week-long visit from 21st February to 28th February 1972 marked the first time a US president had visited China and gave the American people a rare glimpse into the country. During the week-long visit, Nixon and, and his advisors held meetings with senior Chinese officials, including Chairman Mao Zedong. The trip greatly impacted the dynamics of the Cold War and became the starting point for a greater relationship between the two countries, with every president after Nixon, apart from Jimmy Carter, visiting China during their presidency. Toby, could you start by introducing us to the political background in America prior to Nixon's trip? I think that Nixon really had a lot of trouble in his first term. I mean, by June of 1971, his his approval rating had gone down from 50 to 48. He was facing um, a lot of difficulty with the Vietnam War. He They, they were trying to get people out of, of Vietnam in, in fits and starts. They, they had a difficult negotiation process with, with Hanoi going on in Paris. And so, so there's a lot of factors that are convulsing. And Nixon really feels that foreign policy is his thing. Like Nixon had a, a different idea of foreign policy from the idea that Eisenhower and, and Eisenhower's um, Secretary of State had. Nixon felt that Vietnam showed that America was on the decline and that America really need to, to find other markets and other ways to demonstrate American power. So he turned towards the China, the normalizing relationships with China because of that, because of his waning popularity and because of the, the, the difficult situation um, with Vietnam as well. Um, can you... Tell us a bit more about the, the post-World War II relationship between China and America um, and, and the re- reaction in America to the announcement of this trip. That question is for either of you. Well, I think in the immediate period when Mao had taken over China, there was the idea that actually America could maybe broker a peace between the sort of democratic government in China and the Communist Party, but that didn't take didn't take place at all. Eventually, Chiang Kai-shek left China entirely, went to Taiwan, and China was ruled by Mao. And, and the Truman administration made some overtures to trying to have relations with them, but they didn't really want to have relations. And Mao didn't really want to have relations with America either. He, he thought that you know a, a socialist uh, revolution was going to take place in America and convulse and they wouldn't even have to deal with the Truman administration. But actually, then things got worse in the 1950s. People like General MacArthur and people like um, the John Foster Dulles 
hated China. They saw China as really China going communist as really a sign of American weakness in the world, and they feared they feared communist China. Communist China and America basically fought a war against each other in in, in the Korean War, which you know General MacArthur was able to push the the North Koreans back and fight the Chinese who who were supplied by the Soviets. So China was seen as one of the great, you know, specters of communism in the world. And then in Geneva in 1954, Dulles met the uh, soon-to-be Chinese premier, Zhou um, Enlai. And Dulles, and even though Zhou Enlai tried to uh, put his hand out to Dulles, Dulles basically, like, said that he, well, he didn't say anything, he just, he just ignored Joe Lai, and the Chinese considered that to be a great humiliation and they, and they held on to that and it, basically between 1949 and 1970 there was no kinds of relationships with between America and, and, the, and China I mean in, in Hong Kong for example there, there was some Americans in, and they would tr- kind of try to look over Kind of try to to get gauge any information that was coming out of the, the the communist communist China, but they they didn't really know anything about communist China. Communist China almost seemed to marry Americans as is almost like a different world, like it was Mars or something like that. And the the Chinese didn't really know anything about the Americans either. Uh, I would also throw a couple of things in there uh, to start uh, your point of the Korean War. I think there are a few things that really you should bear in mind. Um, first of all. So you, I, I think that this sometimes escapes notice, but in the initial months of the Korean War, the United States basically fought the North Korean army. But in the end of 1950, um, after MacArthur's armies basically reached the northern border of North Korea, the Yalu River, they wound up getting into um, what you might describe as like an army group-sized ambush from the Chinese army. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the war was fought basically between the Chinese army and the United States. And so uh, there was effectively a hot war between Mao's government and the United States, you know, via the Korean conflict. But also something to bear in mind, too, is that uh, MacArthur and a significant number of Republicans, um, and, and MacArthur was obviously like, while not, object, you know, objectively political in the beginning in terms of being a Republican, he was, you know, quite contemptuous of Democratic leadership and eventually had to be removed because of that. He and a lot of Republicans um, were of a generation of people who had spent significant amounts, amounts of time serving as missionaries in China. And as a result, the the kind of instinct of uh, wanting to rescue China from the communists, the idea that that was America's role was, you know, to not just win the war in Korea, but literally to recapture Beijing was, was pretty overtly discussed. Um, people in MacArthur's um, general staff, people in the Republican Party in the United States, they, they, they did not make it a secret that the goal was to eventually get into a war with China. And in fact, MacArthur wanted to, wanted Truman to deploy nuclear weapons against China uh, in order to basically restore Chiang Kai-shek to power. Uh, another thing that I think also you should bear in mind is that I think Nixon, uh, Nixon saw an opportunity both because of the fact that, like you were describing, Toby, the domestic situation in which uh, the U.S. you know, had a, a, an issue with a weakening economy, with runaway inflation, as well as uh, the, you know, the, the, the Vietnam War having dragged on. 
But also, the U.S. was aware, Nixon was aware of the Sino-Soviet split and the fact that uh, there was the Domansky Island conflict in 1968 in which there was literally a shooting war between the Soviet Union and, uh, and, and, and the Chinese military. Um, and so seeing that and knowing the possibility of engaging with the Chinese to potentially wedge them further from the Soviet Union, you know, that, that factored into Nixon's decision to some extent. Um, and I, I think the, the big thing is that I try to explain this to people when we discuss this topic is that it's really easy for people who are, you know, I'm 35, people who are my age or younger to see China as a country that's both, you know, an author, uh, considered an authoritarian enemy, but also like a massive economic partner. But in the 1960s into the early 1970s, the best way I could describe China is that the West, and particularly America, viewed China the way that they view North Korea now. And so if you imagine the idea of a massive thaw in relations with North Korea, that would be the significance of what took place under Nixon in the early 70s. Yes, especially because China's economy was not the economy that it is right now. Oh yeah, not at all. Yeah, the major economic power was obviously Japan at the time, and 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 it's really important that you bring up MacArthur because MacArthur was was the one of the leading heads of the the China lobby, and and it's it's really essential that in the pre Nixon presidency period, the China lobby was one of the most powerful lobbies in Washington, and and MacArthur. It was only in some some sense that MacArthur. Was was going to oust Truman in, in in some of that early period because they get, and he did have real contempt for for the Democrats, who were, who were sort of letting this happen. I also think that you have to see that the 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 academics and the and the media people and the journalists that came in, sort of in the sixties, they did not have the same feeling towards China that that the older generation had, and and this is part of the reason why a normalization was able to happen. Hmm. Um, you, you touched on it a little bit there about the sort of relationship between China and USSR. Can we perhaps go into a little bit more about at that time what that relationship was like and how maybe the communist, uh, communism of, of China differed maybe to how it was in USSR? I think globally you have to think that Although the China and the USSR, they supported each other, they supported each other to some extent in the, the Korean War, they had the same ideology. In, 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 even when Nixon got to China, there was sort of giant posters of Stalin and Marx and Lenin. So this is a, sort of a family of the same ideology. But even before the, the border conflict, there was, there was a clear like I don't know, the, the divergence in the the. The essential nature of the ideology in in China, they they thought that peasant struggles were the way a country developed towards um, so, towards socialism, and and a lot of this was enshrined or crystallized in in Mao's little red book. So they they saw Mao as the fountainhead of communism, basically. But this was this was taught of differently in the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union always saw China as a secondary Soviet Union sort of always saw the 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 Chinese as sort of a little bit backward they they feared communist countries that were a little too independent but things things were going on fine as, at least from the Americans perspective it seemed like a completely congealed um political unit that these these two countries had established but 
but by I think the sixties, by when, when you start getting the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, some people in the Soviet Union considered Mao's actions in 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 those instances to be a little reactionary, and the Chinese saw that the Soviet Union was developing a, a little bit of a, a sort of almost like an upper middle class culture as well. So they they saw that the Soviet Union was going away from their views of um, communism. But I think the the, the main issue that, that they 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 eventually had was that the the Chinese saw the Soviets um crushing the the, the the communist parties in Czechoslovakia as a complete imperialist act. Joe and Lai, who was the Chinese premier, called it rank Hitlerism. So they did not like what, what the the Soviets were do, doing in, in that instance. But then you get to the board then you get to the border issue, which I mean, the, the, the Soviets, the, the shooting at the, the Chinese, the, 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 and the, the Chinese feel that, and I think Mao felt that he was really scared that the Soviets were planning to attack the Chinese in a grand scale war. So he, he had that, he had that feeling. And I think that brought him closer to the idea that maybe he needed to normalize relationships with the with America as well. Could you tell us a little bit about the kind of motivation from the Chinese side for this visit? Well, I think the Chinese, they they had been on the self-isolation for a long, long time, and their economy was str- struggling, especially after the, the Cultural Revolution. So they wanted to normalize relations with, with the United States. And also they feared because Nixon was making overtures to potential strategic uh, arms pact with the, the Soviet Union. They were, they, they were scared that the US and the Soviet Union were going to come together and they were going to make a military pact against the Chinese. So because of the deteriorating relationships with the Soviet Union, the, the Chinese felt that they needed to normalize relations with the, the United States. Mm. And so, from from the American side, then did did they see what was going on in Vietnam with the Vietnam War? Did they see these talks with China as a way of being able to end the war, or as China as as a way of being able to like broker peace in some way? Well, I think it was always tentative. The the Vietnamese, once they realized that the Americans were speaking to China, they were scared. Like in in Hanoi, they did fear that possibly they would they would lose their supply lines from China if the the Americans normalized relations but the Chinese in the meetings in the meetings before the the, the meeting in, in Beijing they always said that they would never ever stop supplying um, the the Vietnam Vietnamese they 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 considered them to be ideological allies and that that kind of was always off of the table I think the Americans what the Ameri- what Nixon really wanted to do is Nixon considered foreign policy to be his, like to be his legacy, and he he saw that he was failing in that. But then he also had a had a really an ideology that was different from the older ideology, and I think that the Nixon doctrine really motivated him to find peace. I think like in our series on. In our series on Nixon, we we're going to look, we've looked at 
um, Nixon and George Wallace, and we're going to look at Watergate. But this is Nixon as the idealist. This is Nixon as the visionary. Nixon, who had a vision of how the world should work, it was it was it was realism. He felt that the United States didn't necessarily need to to fight in these conflicts with 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 communist countries anymore. He was scared of the future. He 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 saw in in his inaugural speech, he talked about China as a country that was living in angry isolation, but he could see that in the future that the, the economy was going to be stronger and this is 800 million people he wanted to be the one who brought them into the the, the family of nations so that he so you have that that personal feeling of, of an individual who who knows his polling is bad who knows that um, Harris polls are saying that the, the, the only nine percent considered him to be the most inspiring person in the in the in the last few years, things like that. And he, who wants to have a stamp in in the foreign policy sphere? So that's really what motivates Nixon. I think members of the State Department were a little bit skeptical about the idea of normalizing relationships with, with China. There was a lot of Sovietologists, as people people call them, mm. who felt that actually. This was going. This was not going to be good for the Soviet Union, and, and they had been trained to, you know, be much more diplomatic to the Soviet Union than than to China. But Nixon and and Kissinger, really, they they. I think Kissinger was really he. he Initially, when Nixon said, oh, we're going to normalize relationships with China, he went to his uh, staff member, uh, Haig, and, and said that Nixon's crazy. He wants to normalize relationships mm-hmm. with China. But Kissinger, from the beginning, even when he worked for Rockefeller, he, his idea, and, and I think he, because he was he was European and he, he, he was much more, who was less idealistic, considered that countries should, should develop relationships with each other based on mutual interest and less on ideology. And he really fell into Nixon's own doctrine as well because Nixon had the same idea. And I think that really brought them together both expediently because of um, wanting to sort of bring the gaze away of the American people away from Vietnam to, to a different uh, foreign policy uh, accomplishment, but also ideologically on their part, because they, they saw the world a little bit differently from older policymakers. You mentioned Kissinger there. Do we know much about the kind of behind closed doors, as, as it were, as far as how the talks went away from, from the media spotlight? Well, I think that initially Kissinger wasn't um, involved in the talks. So this is really how they were able to get the Chinese, how they were even able to get Kissinger to secretly go off to um, China to, to talk with Joe and Lai was that they had first had to establish um, a channel with the Romanians, who were a country who had good relations with both the United States and China, and then one with Pakistan, the, the Pakistani Premier Yahya Khan, who, like, he would, at, in in Warsaw and, and other places, he would talk to Chinese diplomats, and they they would, and he would say that the Americans want to um, have improved relations, and they they and he could see that they were they were enthusiastic about this and he would bring back information to the Americans and so then the Americans at the Warsaw talks um, set up a, a sort of diplomatic channel where the, the Americans would talk to Chinese diplomats and 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 I think it sort of built up from there and then eventually Joe and Lai sent um, Nixon and Kissinger a message which said that 
he was happy for a, a sort of a major figure in the government to come along to China and to discuss um, the, the issue of Taiwan. And Nixon and Kissinger were happy because they, they took it as, as more, oh, this is more than the issue of Taiwan. We're going to talk about like broader normalization of relationships between the United States and China. So what was the immediate impact of Nixon's visit to China, both for, for, for Nixon at home and in the kind of the wider political sense uh, on, on the global stage? Well, I think for Nixon at home, the, the implications of the meeting were that he got his polling bump, his, his polls went up. I think once Nixon announced it, millions of people were quite happy. It's, it's strange because actually um, in the 68 election, they, they polled and, and, and showed that most people were against normalization, but, the, but once Nixon had done it, and I think probably because he kept it secret for a long time and he kept it outside of, you know, congressional um, machinations, the people really reacted to it really well. At the National Review, they did not um, react well. William Russia considered it to be a complete betrayal of Taiwan. Um, Reagan had his misgivings, although... Nixon was able to sort of bring Reagan in by sending Reagan off to Taiwan to talk to the, to the Taiwanese about why Nixon was doing this and to give them some guarantees that their independence would not be sabotaged because of this, Although you know, even though that was actually a, a bald-faced lie. And I think that so m most people were happy, members of the right were not happy, William F. Buckley was not happy at all even though Nixon brought William F. Buckley to China, Buckley wrote scathingly about, um, about the, the visit. He, 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 he talked about how Nixon and, and Mao were meeting together and how like, Nixon was pretending or, or making a, an analogy that the, the, the Chinese revolution was similar to the American revolution. He, 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 he um, Buckley talked about how, you know, it, everything was sort of put together in a really efficient way but people didn't look like the people didn't look like they were happy um he Buck, buckley even sort of talked about how in the past before the communists had come come to be although like china had received some racist uh, humiliation at the hands of um westerners who had taken you know he he admitted that westerners had taken over parts of the country and in that in that sort of pre-war periods and in you know they had their own post office and things like that but he said that actually the, the chinese were overturning that in in a in a, in a sort of in a liberal way that um they were making money things like uh, things like that so william f buckley was very he was very he was very very despondent and and actually it was part of the reason why william f buckley started to support other Republican candidates like John Ashbrook after this because he 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 found it to be a complete deceit. Um, Reagan, on the other hand, even though he he considered um he considered the Chinese he called the Chinese to be murderous bums basically. <laughs> Ray Reagan Reagan saw and I think he told Nixon that he could see the the television. Um, attraction of this, that this was one of the biggest things that the president had done since, you know, the Truman doc doctrine. So he, he saw it, but Goldwater 
and the members of the National Review were very unhappy, but they were really in the minority. Well, yeah, and I, mean, I would I would point out too that I think Goldwater and that that strain of American Republicans were kind of wrestling for supremacy within the Republican Party, and and Nixon managed to successfully uh, parry them while in many ways copying a, a significant amount of their rhetoric. Uh, and so I think Nixon receiving the publicity boost that he did and that leading into the 1972 election, helping him to win re-election, uh, I think that Reagan, from you know my perspective on Reagan, he he understood the utility of that, whereas people like like Buckley were were hardline anti-communists and had been forever and would not see a trip like this or engagement like this as anything besides appeasement. And, you know, if you're familiar with, uh, with the national review style of American conservatism, you'll, you'll understand that to them, everything is Munich. Everything is always (laughs) Munich. It's always appeasement. You're always Neville Chamberlain. Uh, there's no such thing as diplomatic engagement aside from, um, being, you know, in hardline opposition or being a sellout, if you will. Um, and so it doesn't surprise me. You know that that was their reaction, even though, you know, that they, they the the same people who said that in 1972 were in favor of China receiving most favored trading nation status in 2000 if they were still alive. Like it's it's a weird progression in American conservatism, but it's uh it it, it you know somehow that uh, that dialectic is achievable you know on a long enough timeline. Do we know if? if... I mean, we talk about Nixon's kind of getting a poll bump and, you know, kind of uh, maybe some increased positivity back home. But do we know it actually had any real bearing on the public as far as the 1972 election went? Surely there must have been more sort of important factors as far as the electorate was concerned rather than necessarily the openness of of relationships with China. Well, I think like Nixon in the middle of 1971, polls were showing that he was he was um in a in a dead heat with Edmund Muskie, although like Muskie's campaign sort of uh, sort of went up in flames because of some drug issues that he, he has in, <laughs> later on recording books like um fair, the fair and loathing on the campaign trail but the thing about Nixon is that he, he Nixon was very suspicious. He was very scared. He he felt that he needed to win re-election. That's that that's the reason that the whole creep um, thing was was developed and the 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 and Nixon's uh, people you know tapped the Watergate and things like that and which we'll talk about in the future. But I think that Nixon in in 1971 it, it has to be understood that he was he was under an immense pressure the the, the issue like um and i think during this period the the, the americans attacked cambodia yeah I, which, I wanted to jump in and say that that yeah you have to emphasize the fact that the expansion of the war into cambodia was so massively unpopular that it really kickstarted the student movement and the anti-war movement even more so than it was uh you know under under johnson and subsequently under nixon in his first in the initial years of his first term yeah, and, and and the 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 attack on Cambodia even stymied the the the, the deal with the Chinese because the Chinese, um, you know, sent out press releases about you know the Americans being sort of like murderers and after that, and 
when the American diplomats tried to talk to the Chinese diplomats, they they sort of froze them out for for a bit. So so, so in, and in in Vietnam and and the the Americans tried to expand in, in into Laos as well, and and the 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 Southern Vietnamese army was completely crushed. Like that, they. So the, the, um, Nixon sort of realized that the South Vietnam was basically it was it, he was it was impossible to defend. In in Paris, Kissinger tried desperately to get the North Vietnamese to to delay taking over the country. They wanted peace with honor. The the the, the, the Nixon um, Nixon people had Nixon and Kissinger in, in, together had really weakened Lyndon Johnson's hand in 68 because they had tried to feed the opposition information uh, that that you know that Lyndon Johnson wasn't being completely um above board in in the the peace talks which which weakened the the, the peace talks in 68 so you had a war that had gone on for 4 years and nothing had been gained so and 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 every day you have people coming to the White House, you know, post with them um, placards and protesting, and 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 you you have things like Kent State. So that Nixon Nixon was was really like in a quite dark period in his presidency, and and think and it wasn't just the Vietnam. You you have to think that they had introduced wage and price controls because of the economy and. The, on the on the right, the, the people like Milton Friedman, who were in the Nixon's government, they thought this was like this kind of unorthodoxy was 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 sickening. Like so, and and Pat Buchanan came to to Nixon and said that you know like you have an administration that isn't right and isn't left, but it has found a way to gain the suspicion and the the ire of both sides. So he was not doing very well. But this the 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 China thing, the China game, as he calls it, was really able to 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 salvage his presidency in, in that period. Although I think when you have to look at 1972, the McGovern campaign was run so poorly. In hindsight, then you know maybe Nixon would have won anyway. But I was going to say point, it wasn't a close know. election. I mean, it, it was no, it was a landslide as humanly possible. Basically, I think it was what McGovern won. Yeah, McGovern won one states. state. Yeah, he won one state. I think he won Minnesota, and that was it. Um, so yeah, it was it was a complete blowout. And I also think that the um, it's hard to explain the the disconnect between Nixon's victory in 1972 and the momentum that the anti-Nixon anti-war movement had in 1971. Uh, the extent to which it was very, very, uh, not just, I would say like, like large organized, powerful, but also, um, gaining momentum. And so uh, it would be, it would be unfair, I think, to point it out and say, okay, that the, the, the trip to China was the turning point, because like you said, McGovern's campaign was quite ineptly run. There was a lot of, uh, the, the impolite term, uh, you may, I, I won't use, but what you might call sabotage, um, from from young Republicans and things along those lines, there was a de- definitely a, a lot of uh, of skullduggery being being polite, but also I think that the the domestic situation had changed in the sense of 
Nixon really appealed to uh, what we would kind of now call like a law and order conservative. Mm -hmm. And I think that there was a backlash to the anti-war and student movement uh, and also some of the um, the other protest movements taking place at the time um, in the wake of, you know, things like, for example, if you look at uh, University of Oregon's ROTC building getting burned down because of um, uh, the Cambodia invasion, if you look at things like uh, the Kent State shootings, things along those lines, um, there there was the protest and then there was also like a social reaction to it. And America is still a very conservative country, but even more so in those days, I think there was a, a, a very profound kind of middle America reaction, like in the reactionary sense, to a, a lot of the the um, sort of protest movements and things like that that were taking place. Um, and I just think that that ultimately, Nixon, for all of his faults, for all of his paranoia, was was very canny and very willing to take a risk if he thought it would benefit him politically. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he was just a very astute operator. He was cynical as all get out, but he was a very astute operator. And so I think that he understood that, you know, in 1971, 1972, he had to be the elder statesman. He had to look presidential. He had to look dignified and above it all. And I yeah. think he, he managed to pull that off. Yeah, I mean, you, you look at the 72 election, obviously, as we touched on, being a complete landslide, you know, you contrast that with a fairly close election in 68 where... Uh, Law and Order, as you said, what was such a, a key component, which we we talked about in our, our our earlier Nixon podcast. Do you think it's fair to say that there was Nixon was able to kind of bring that over with him, while the left simply still had that kind of tarnished image of you know the Chicago riots and you know protesting and you know anti police and all, all that kind of thing. I mean, it, it would certainly tie up with the numbers that we see in the seventy two election. Yeah, and I also have to say that. If you look at 1970 when they had the midterms and then 1972, 1970, the Democrats gained seats. Like Nixon ran against the protesters. He ran against drugs and the Democrats gained nine seats in the House and they, they lost two seats in the Senate, but they had House and Senate majorities. So it, it, I think, I think that the, 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 the China thing and the, the foreign policy side, it really helped him because it, it it gained him that elder statesman um place it, it, and he he also once once he did he got europe and china he went to um moscow and and they had the this this the salt talks and and he won there as well so there's a, there's a sense in which that nixon was able to sort of really push away the the vietnam thing and then you had mcgovern's campaign which is so inept but Mm -hmm. it, it, I don't think McGovern's campaign necessarily represented the strength of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. The Democratic Party was, still had the House and the Senate. So I think it's really about the two individuals there and the failure of the of the yeah and the, and and I also think that the the McGovern campaign it's it, it it's like McGovern lost lost um, big labor. Like a loss, like you know, like the, the Jimmy Hoffa type people didn't mm. vote for McGovern. Like um, George Meany said, he, "I'm not voting for." Or he did not vote for George McGovern. He, or he was Meany was golfing with with Nixon because that sort of middle of the road, silent majority type that was part of the the FDR coalition no longer saw itself attached to the kinds of things that 
George McGovern represented. But when you go to the mid seven, you have someone who's much more peered down, like Jimmy Carter, who's sort of religious and things like that. That you know, he he's able to 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 win the presidency. So it is really important to see the, the McGovern campaign represented things in American life, things that maybe are, are around today, but but things in American life that did not have a majority consensus. Well, I also think it's really important to point out that the McGovern campaign was the first. I mean, obviously, um, Nixon won in 1968. But if you think about McGovern as the the follow on to the failure of 1968 in the immediate aftermath of the civil rights movement and the, 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 the Southern split, basically, you know, the way in which the significant number of Democratic politicians became Republicans, uh, mm-hmm. basically, and the Republicans became the segregationist party or the, the sort of the remnants of the segregationist party, depending on what political era you're looking at. I think that Carter had the advantage of both being a Southern Democrat and also being the president, you know, the candidate to run immediately after Ford pardoned Nixon. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that given Watergate, given Nixon's resignation, given Ford's pardoning, um, there was such a swing to the Democrats just sort of as not even not protest vote, then just kind of like an outrage vote. It, it's under it's understandable why that would take place. But then by 1978, you have, you know, the Democrats picking up some seats, but you also have um, the taxpayers revolt in California. And then by 1980, you have Reagan and the moral majority. Um, I think that America is still in thrall to the fact that um, a significant amount of its politics has been upended by the civil rights movement. And I, I say that obviously from a position from, from the left, but I think that the American system, the American sort of polity, that, that compromise that you describe of both the New Deal coalition and other coalitions that have existed in American history um, cannot hold uh, when there's an anti-racist party or even a party that wants to acknowledge one man, one vote across racial lines in America because a significant amount of the American right and this was even more so, more overtly presented, um, you know, in the Republican Party under Nixon, uh, rejected the Civil Rights Bill, the Voter Register, the Voter Rights Act, the um, all of the reforms, the immigration reforms that took place in 1965. So much of that stuff, um, the Republicans stand in either overt or covert opposition to, and, and and did at that time as well. And so, I think that 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 maybe that sounds like conspiracy theorizing, but I really I really think that. If you look at the coalition that formed around Nixon and what propelled Nixon in in '68 and what kept him afloat throughout his first term, um, so much of it comes from the fact that the Democrats basically became unelectable in the South and, in in many cases, in the North. Uh, in my home state of Indiana, uh, was a solidly Democratic state, and then, as I understand it, I do not believe that Indiana voted in favor of a Democrat again after 1960, 1964 until Obama in 2008. And it hasn't since either. Um, and that's, that's a northern state. So that gives you mm-hmm. some indication of the sea change that took place because of the Civil Rights Act. Um, and Nixon was a byproduct of that in many ways. Yeah, I think many people say that the 1984 um, sort of landslide is really something that Watergate sort of delayed 
it, it, the sociology of you know, the urban urban Democrats and and the, the the Democratic Party becoming unelectable in the South is is something that was almost inevitable across that period after the civil civil rights acts of sixty four and sixty five, and I think that um, seventy two shows that. And then I think you 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 sort of have to wait probably because of Watergate really. So just touching on that, then obviously, uh, in case anyone doesn't know, uh, there was a thing called Watergate that came along and slightly tarnished Nixon's reputation and his career. Um, <laughs> when when you when you look at how he was able to kind of position himself with China and how he was able to represent himself as a kind of statesman of a policy throughout the world, what is the China visit to Nixon's legacy? You know. It's very hard to separate Nixon from Watergate and the kind of the tarnish from that. But if we are to try and move that to one side, what what has the China visit done for, for Nixon's legacy? I think Nixon himself, when he was talking about this, he said that I'm going to be known for two things. I'm going to be known for China and then I'm going to be known for Watergate, that that thing, that little thing, <laughs> Watergate. Like, a and, minor, and minor. A minor thing. And, you know, like in China, Mao always used to say, like, I don't know why that really was able to oust the president. <laughs> and, like, the Chinese would just laugh about it, like, what? Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, yes, for, for I think just for American journalism as a, as a whole, like those people, um, you know, Bernstein, they've, they've become, they've become gods of like yep, sacred figures. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and I think that, yeah, so Nixon, Nixon felt these two things were, he's going to be known for. I think in the immediate period, it was really good for Nixon. It, it sort of bumped up his, his poll ratings um, it the Taiwan situation was was a little difficult with the right and and even in Taiwan, but actually Taiwan ended up being able to maintain its independence despite you know the the sort of withdrawal from the United States. And then in the years afterwards, although Nixon actually wasn't able to establish full diplomatic relations with, with China by the Carter administration, the the Chinese and Americans were able to establish full diplomatic relations so you know it was a great thing that happened and it also like if you think about the economy nixon and kissinger were scared that the the western european economy was increasing and the chip japan japanese economy was increasing and like people were feeling it in the 70s and um you know american america was for the first time was running a, a trade deficit and they had to get off the Bretton Woods standard where America would back the, the, the gold and, and Bretton Woods and, and go into much more floating exchange rates. So this was a time of great change. But Nixon, Nixon and Kissinger thought tilting towards China, towards this big new open market would, would help the, um, the American economy in the future. And, and, and I think it's paid, although today, you know, it's less so, but it paid some some dividend and i think so like it's it's um it's all quite it's a lot of positives all around but i think that nixon nixon sort of knew that that his his whole legacy is really watergate and and, and the 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 china thing 
although you know the Nixon going to China is like, like oh it's his Nixon going to China moment when any when Obama goes to Cuba and things like that. Mm-hmm. But like Nixon knew, and I think we we all know that this is really a footnote in Nixon's legacy. But it's really important to to talk about it because it it is like what did Nixon wanted to what didn't who did Nixon want to be like mm-hmm. Nixon was different from the people like the John Birches who were isolationists he he was he was he but he wasn't a neoconservative in that sense he believed in America as you know this this bulwark against communism he believed in the Nixon doctrine one of his favorite presidents was Eisenhower. Another was Theodore Roosevelt, and another was Woodrow Wilson. Like he really believed in Woodrow Wilson's views on the League of Nations, and 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 he really wanted to make a world where all of the big wars would end, which is what mm-hmm. Wilson wanted. There was no he wanted no more big wars. There was always going to be brush fires at different countries, but he wanted to end all big wars. He he wanted he he really wanted to create a system of peace. Although I mean they you know they they killed Allende there. They they bombed um, Cambodia. They 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 carried on Vietnam War for four years. They 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 they, they yeah. They put, one, they put that to one side. It's a very peaceful kind. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. But like this, but like I mean, even beyond like the empirics of what actually happened, what's Nixon's vision of himself? And and mm-hmm. like this is a peacemaker. Is was his vision of himself? Yeah, it's fascinating to think an alternative history without Watergate and what Nixon would be remembered for. I was actually reading a, uh, an interview uh, between all people. Uh, it was actually Anthony Hopkins and Brad Pitt, and Anthony Hopkins had played had played Richard Nixon, and he he was kind of talking to Oliver Stone about uh, about about the character of Nixon, and uh, apparently he had uh, Oliver Stone had been told that. Uh, uh, Bill Clinton would actually uh, phone Nixon every week to kind of be in contact about you know China and Russia and you know he he was Nixon was considered a a, a brilliant politician you know and you know that is that is in part what he was there was lots of other things to his character but there was aspects of him that was a brilliant politician just moving away from Nixon directly. Nixon did talk about that trip as the week that changed the world, but what was the lasting global legacy of Nixon's visit to China, and, and in particular how, how China was able to uh, maybe move f- further into the the eye of the West? I think we sort of talked about it. The the, the China lobby was, was weakened, so there was much more, people much more happy to have China. Uh, obviously, the... Um, the, the 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 U.S. delegation at the U.N. tried to keep Taiwan's seat, but Nixon and Kissinger really, didn't really want to keep Taiwan's seat. They had abandoned Taiwan, and the, the Taiwanese people were were really quite gutted because it just happened overnight, and and they they, they you know, uh, but they managed to keep their country. I think what's what's really interesting is that China was able eventually to get on the U.N. China was was opened up to uh, American markets. It, it, this this was the China was opened up the trade. This was the beginning of China coming into the world. And then you know once you get into the the late eighties into the nineties, China starts to have economic growth rates that are higher than 
Japan's economic growth rate, even though the, the GDP per capita still remains low. So, I mean, this is China really coming into the world. It didn't happen immediately because full diplomatic relations weren't established until the Carter administration. And there were some struggles because towards the end of the decade, um, Mao died himself. And then, you know, because when any time a communist leader dies, there's so much uh, tumult in the leadership context there was a Chinese um, a sort of higher up Chinese officials would just like sign themselves into hospital beds because they didn't want to be killed because, because everyone was just competing for who was going to be the new um, sort of alpha <laughs> uh, of, of, of the, the, the party uh, but I mean eventually so, so it brought it really brought China into the world, and and it, and the eight hundred million people turned to you know billion billion people. So yeah, I think it did really it, it did really change the world in that sense. And Nate, just before we do finish off, it would be kind of remiss of us to uh, have you on the show and not kind of get your general thoughts on on Nixon on on, the, on his presidency and just on the kind of maybe legacy as it looks now perhaps to to an american eyes compared to uh, what's currently going on in america right now you know um i read uh, uh, during the 2016 primary and then subsequently the election um i was giving a lot of thought to the extent to which it seemed every time that i read about watergate or i read about nixon i i thought i i felt some parallel and mm-hmm. so i wound up reading a Rick Perlstein's book, Nixonland, uh, which was recommended to me by a friend. Um, and I was really shaken, <laughs> to be honest with you. This was probably about June 2016, because I saw so many parallels to what he described uh, as the, the kind of tumult of the, the campaign trail in 1968 um, and then Nixon's election and the way in which Nixon was more than happy to inflame culture war things, but also um, kind of copped the language and the some of the talking points of the um, Goldwater wing of the Republican Party mm-hmm. in order to kind of make them palatable. And if you've read that book, um, I'm paraphrasing because I can't quite remember it, but the, the, the terminal line of the book is basically something to the effect of, you know, what what is the end result of Nixon land? It's like, we don't know, but we're living in it. <laughs> and that's that's the way that I feel now is that America hasn't gotten over that split, you know, the, you know, almost basically 55 years since the, uh, the civil rights movement and the subsequent legislation. I think in a lot of ways, America is going backwards from it. I think, Mm -hmm. uh, when you look at things like, well, the stratification of wealth across racial lines, um, economic inequality in general, uh, segregation in schools and housing in America, the, um, the way in which Trump kind of embodies this revanchist uh, kind of eliminationist strain of American conservatism. I think that so much of this has parallels in, in Nixon. And I think that I look back at, I think that the really big takeaway for me is that, you know, my, my, my wife has been listening to, I want to say the show is called slow burn. Um, and what she's been listening to is, is, specifically on the topic of Watergate. And I think the thing that she keeps coming back to me and telling me about that, that rings very true to me and what I've read and what I understand of the, of the topic is that 
impeachment wasn't a done deal. It wasn't even really all that popular, both legislatively or you know, in polling of the, the electorate. Uh, many, many people didn't care. Many, many people didn't believe it. And the only thing about Nixon's impeachment proceedings that I think made a difference was the extent to which it kind of was a forced documentation of what he did. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, I think, is his, is his big legacy. Also, conveniently, humorously, if you will, I don't know if you, 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 guys, you guys do a lot more research than I do, but you may not know this. Nixon taped so much of his goings-on in the Oval Office that incriminated him. And his primary reason, as I understand it, for making those tapes was so that he could donate them to his presidential library for a tax write-off. <laughs> so nothing, nothing to me summarizes American conservatism more than recording yourself doing crime so you can pay less taxes. <laughs> and in that regard, I feel like there are some huge parallels between Nixon and Trump. But I think, you know, less humorously and more, uh, more saliently, I suppose, what Nixon fomented and what he rode to power never really went away in America. And that manifested as, you know, as Reaganism, that manifested as um, the, the, the very kind of laser-targeted culture war division under Bush, um, and that certainly manifested under, under Trump, who seems to me to be like, he's the weird funhouse mirror version of Reaganism. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so I think that, it's not a straight line, but you can absolutely draw a line from Nixon to Trump. And you certainly, it's an absolute straight trajectory to look at the Republican Party of 1968 or 1972 uh, right into 2020, 2016, even to the point where people like Karl Rove, um, people like um, Lee Atwater, who, who, who passed away, but you know was involved in, for example, in the 88 campaign for George H.W. Bush, um, people like Roger Stone, uh, they were all involved in Nixon's student reelection campaign in 1972. Mm -hmm. So that, that strain of republicanism, that sort of damn the torpedoes, screw the rules, I'll do whatever I want, you know, kind of chicanery, bad faith, et cetera, that, that has a direct line. And many of those people that were involved in that went on to, to positions of extreme significance in the Republican Party. So... I think it all really comes back to, to Nixon. I think I think he's one of the most significant presidents of the 20th century. He's one of the most significant presidents uh, in American history in a large degree. He, in my opinion, has influenced the state of American politics as much as any post-war president. Um, and I honestly think that uh, Rick Perlson is right, that we're still living in the world he created. Uh, I just hope we can get out of it because it's not good. <laughs> Well, yeah, and it's important to note, like a lot of this stuff, um, Nixon and China. Although obviously it's very important for China, a lot of this stuff is quite proximate. Like Nixon introducing wage and price controls, or or Nixon um, trying to push for peace. These kinds of things, they're not like like I mean, wage and price controls is something that maybe the Democrats because it's, it's the most. Or most invasive imposition on the on or intervention into the economy that anyone had done since FDR. So Nixon was using Democ he was he was working with a different electorate. So Nixon had to to get to Nixon land. Nixon had to sort of uh, placate a completely different electorate, an electorate that was much more you know 
union-led electorate that 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 was a lot had become very much skeptical of wars, things like that. So Nixon had to juggle his proximate concerns in a way that doesn't necessarily link him to the Republican Party. I mean, the clearest indication of this is William F. Buckley, you know, trying to get a different candidate in. But I think it's 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 really the overarching Nixon, the Nixon that we covered in the podcast on Law and Order with George Wallace and the Nixon we're gonna cover in in Watergate. That that is the the, the, the entire legacy of the man and what why he is, you know, one of the one or two most important post war presidents. Well, that was absolutely fantastic. Um thank you both so much for your, your contributions. I I really enjoy this episode. Um there will be a, a future episode uh, coming up with uh, Nixon and Watergate. Um, not quite sure when that will be, but that will be in the near future. Uh, Nate, you're obviously still going with your uh, with your uh, What of a Hell Way to Die podcast. And, and the uh, excellent Trash Juices podcast as well. <laughs> yeah, I would be remiss if I didn't plug both of those. That If you're interested in military and veterans news from a left-wing perspective, please listen to What a Hell of a Way to Die. And if you're listen, interested in listening to uh, British politics and culture and a perhaps less than utopian take on technology, mm-hmm. listen to Trash Future, my other podcast. Yeah, just basically hunt Nate down and listen to anything he says. It's well worth listening. Um, from Nate, from Toby, and from myself, thank you very much for listening, and uh, have a good night. Goodbye. All right. Bye. Bye.